0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts
0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
2: You're listening to Tea Break Time Travel, where every month we look at a different archaeological object and take you on a journey into their past. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Tea Break Time Travel. I am your host, Matilda Siebrecht, and today I'm savouring a winter almond tea because even though it was ridiculously warm the last month or two, it's suddenly decided that it's winter, at least with us. I don't know how it is with you. And joining me on my tea break today is professional embroiderer, Dr. Alexandra Makin. Makin. I realised I forgot to ask you how to pronounce your name. Makin. 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 That is a great name for a creative person. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. That's fantastic. I'm sorry. I'm sure you've heard that so many times before.
0: A couple of times. I should tell my husband's family. <laughs> and are you also on tea today, Alex? I am. I'm on on a fair trade English breakfast today I umdenard whether to go for salon or not but i plumped for English breakfast
2: English breakfast and are you a classic British English breakfast with milk or
0: oh no no milk in any tea whatsoever oh, no. okay interesting oh okay, okay.
2: yeah no I, I was well I've said this already on this podcast I was always given slack by my English relatives when they said what you just wanted black with sugar and I was yeah but now I have it with with milk so oh
0: uh, no Well, yeah, I am a bit of an oddball in that sense. It goes back to my parents. Um, For one length, we gave up sugar from tea and never went back. And for another length, we gave up milk from tea and they went back to milk, but I just couldn't after that. So um, i black tea ever since. Yeah.
2: But do you have milk in other things still or are you milk free? No, I'm fairly milk
0: free if I'm being honest. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Okay. Also like chocolate and stuff or just the raw milk?
0: Occasionally I'll have chocolate, but I'm more of a crisps person than chocolate. Oh, interesting. More savoury yeah. savory than sweet. Yeah, mm, definitely. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> thank you for so much for joining me. And as I mentioned at the beginning, Alexandra is a professional embroiderer and also specialises in textile archaeology. But did you also do archaeological training of some kind or have you sort of gone into it from the embroidery route?
0: So, oh, it's a bit of a long-winded story. I shall cut it down. That's fine. We've got plenty of time on this podcast. <laughs> okay. and <laughs> I don't don't want to put people to sleep. They'll need a really strong tea for that. And that's that maybe after that. <laughs> so in the UK, a lot of people, after doing their GCSEs, will go on and do A-levels. And um, that's what I did. And then after that, I went down to the Royal School of Needlework and did um, what was then called their three-year apprenticeship that no longer exists anymore. It's a different scheme. But And I left that and I was thinking, I never want to embroider again. I never want to look at an embroidery again. <laughs> and that went well. And my other love was archaeology. And so I decided at that point to do an undergraduate degree in um, archaeology. So I moved from London all the way up to the amazing Newcastle, upon time and did my archaeology degree up there. Oh
2: okay. I'm fascinated that they still had indeed needlework apprenticeships like and did they I mean you said that that one's still not running but did they did those sort of things still exist nowadays?
0: Well The Royal School of Needleworks apprenticeship was unique, really. And that was one of the things that drew me to it. It was very different to the type of training that was going on in university systems, you know, where you do your foundation course and then you do perhaps go into fashion or something along those lines, where you could specialise in embroidery. This was much more traditional and learning those traditional techniques with a background of the history to them as well. So, and that's what... um, I enjoyed about and why I wanted to go in down there and do that that course because of course it's combining that history side of it Mm. so I mean that ran for decades and decades but then it's morphed now and it's now called um, the future I think it's called the future teachers um, course it's still three years Um, I'm not sure how different it is to the apprenticeship but it's still running in, in that form now they were just they took on very few apprentices each year um, so you had not one-to-one tu- tutoring but it was you had a good ratio and it yeah. was very in-depth tutoring to um, bring you to a standard where you could perhaps be for example recently some of the old apprentices have been called back to create the coronation ropes and things like that so it, it, it wow. was that, that was the point of it.
2: Okay, so sort of really a tra- sort of traditional making specialists, <laughs> experts, yeah. uh, professional employers as well. Okay, interesting. And when you started your archaeology degree, I mean, you said you never wanted to embroider again. So yes. at what
0: point did you decide, <laughs> okay, fine, I'll go back to embroidery? <laughs> well, that that was my brother's fault, actually. Wow. Uh, so <laughs> while whilst I was in Newcastle, he was studying his degree in history at Durham. And I had a car, so we would meet up and would go out to visit places because those of you who may not know, by car at that time, we're talking back in the 90s here, it was 20 minutes down the A1 between Newcastle and Durham. Yeah. And one day we decided to visit Durham Cathedral and they had on display there the, the stole, the maniple and the ribbons, sometimes called a girdle still, that were discovered in the tomb of St Cuthbert. I was just blown away by them because on the apprenticeship we went back to opus Anglicanum, and i'd never really thought about well what happened before then you know people didn't just wake up in the 12th century and go uh or 13th century go, yeah that's embroidered. and look how amazing we are yeah, doing wow. this gold work with all these complicated patterns and things so, wow we're great at design too and, and, and but and then seeing these pieces from the tomb of saint Huthbert, uh, so they were we think they were created around nine ten CE, and I was just like, "Oh my goodness, that's uh, absolutely yeah." I was just it blew my mind that mm. the skill, the level of skill, and the the technique, the detail, the design, the use of materials. It was I thought yeah, this came before Opus Anglicanum, and and at that time there was such a big fuss about Opus And and um, I was like, "But this is really important and interesting, and actually much more exciting because." Very few, if anybody, had really studied pre-Opah in detail. And I can remember pressing my nose against the glass and leaving these marks all over the display. I I'm sorry. Um, and, you know, as I was trying to get closer and closer to these pieces to see them in this dim light. And that was it then. I was off. I was back to the embroidery, but particularly from that period.
2: Uh, oh but it's great that you that you did manage to combine both things and then it wasn't that, you know, the three I mean, I wouldn't say the three years had been wasted anyway, but you know, it's nice that you could use something that you had so much training in already. Yes. Like it, you didn't yes. have to relearn. Yeah. Is, and as as of course today we are traveling back in time, I have to ask all of my guests if you could <laughs> travel back in time to a point. Where would you go
0: and why? Well, when you first emailed me about the podcasting, you said you might ask me this question. I've been racking <laughs> my brains because obviously, people would expect me to say the, the early medieval period, but I don't. I don't think I would. Oh, nice. I think I'm quite happy here and. I suppose it's a two pronged answer. So first of all, if I was going back in time and people could see me and I might be able to, I don't know, fall over and break an arm or a leg, there would be no NHS or no no dental care or anything like that. You're thinking too practically. I know, I (laughs) think this is me though. So therefore, I wouldn't want to go back in time. But if I was just going back in time and being like a fly on the wall and Mm. investigating, then obviously it would be the early medieval period. And obviously I would be looking at embroidery and but not just looking at how the embroiderers were creating but I would want to investigate everything how and where the materials were coming from why people were commissioning what they were the meanings and behind behind their uses and and all of of it really. So yeah, so not thinking too practically. (laughs) It's an obvious answer (laughs) that I'm giving really. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, you'll be happy
2: today because before we chat a bit more about today's object, we're going to journey back in time and this month we're taking a much shorter trip than usual because we're only going back to 1077 AD, which this is a date that I might have to discuss with you in a moment because (laughs) it might even be too early or too late, but we shall get there, to a thick walled castle nestled amongst the rolling hills of Kent, England. Inside one of the outer rooms, there are several expanses of woven cloth piled onto the floor. One panel of this cloth is fixed into three very wide frames running alongside the few windows of the room. At these frames sit several women, their heads bent over their work, needles flashing in the sunlight as they pull brightly coloured thread through the tightly stretched cloth. An occasional chuckle punctuates the soft murmur of conversation. Then at one point, one of the women nudges her neighbour and points at the scene in front of her, gesturing at a part that she's just finished. The two of them break into peals of laughter and the others all peer over to see what the source of the joke, giggling and snorting as they look at the freshly embroidered scene. Now, I was inspired by this time travel thing by a previous podcast that I actually did with Alex, yes. which was done for, through the Exarch show and uh, where we mentioned very briefly the Veo Tapestry and you mentioned that there was some... Kind of funny scenes that had been included uh, potentially by the by the seamstresses. I think it was that anyway. If not, it's fine. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> a little a little fictional journey. So today we are looking at the Bayeux. I think I'm saying it correctly. The Bayeux tapestry. Bayeux. And so we'll get into the details soon. But first, as always, let's have a very quick look at some of the most asked questions on the internet, courtesy of Google search Autofill, which I was expecting to not have that many, but actually there were loads. So we might not get through them all and we'll have to (laughs) pop some into the next section um, and make it part of the discussion. The first one, quite simple, is uh, what is the Bayeux Tapestry? tapestry, What does the Bayeux Tapestry depict?
0: So I suppose in simple terms, it depicts the downfall of the English as they had come to see themselves at the hands of the Normans. But it's, it's more complicated than that. It shows really, it's, think of it as a cartoon. So you're seeing the main snippets of the story in pictorial form. And it shows the end of Edward the Confessor, this great English Anglo-Saxon English king, as he comes to the end of his reign and it's about the transition of power. So he had no children, and so therefore his descendants were fighting, I suppose, politically fighting over who would be more likely to take over as king. And there was this powerful family of whom Harold was a son, and they were at the foremost for uh, becoming the next, he was at the foremost for becoming the next ruling monarch. And in the Bayer Tapestry, and documentary evidence suggests this as well, that Edward the Confessor did say to him, you, I want you to reign after me. However, at that time, England was apparently uh, one of the most organised, one of the most prosperous kingdoms or countries within what we would now call Europe. And obviously it had the envious eyes of people looking over from the channel. Oh, one the of yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we won't go into that. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Yes, let's get back to the 11th century. <laughs> and of, one of those was um, William, William the Conqueror, as so he became known to, to us over here. But he was king, I suppose. He was, well, not king. He was Duke of Normandy. And he had a... Family link through the maternal side, so he could tenuously claim that he had a right to the English throne as well. And obviously, because um, of all the how well, organised we were, how rich and prosperous the country was, he wanted the country. Fair, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it so there's all of this political shenanigans and backgrounds and manoeuvres going on in in, in the background. And on the bear tapestry itself, which then shows Harold going across to Normandy. He gets captured um, and he ends up going to, um, I'm cutting this down quite a lot, he ends up going to William's court and he, he goes on campaigns with them. And um, in the end, he, according to the tapestry, he, and, and some documentary evidence, he swears an allegiance to William. And there, and therefore, William can use that to help him claim the English throne. So he's mm-hmm. saying, actually, Harold's actually saying, "No, you should be king of England," and he swears that on um, relics, which is kind of like us going to court today and putting our hand on the Bible and mm, swearing our okay. oath. It's the, it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. Hmm. Obviously, Harold eventually gets back to England and Edward dies and uh, Harold becomes king, saying, no, I didn't really say that, William could have been king. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Fake news, fake news. Yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so William obviously is incensed by this. As he would be, yeah, yeah. He gets the Pope on side and... In the meantime, there are people. There are kings from Scandinavia who are like, no, we should be king of England. Uh-huh. And so you get them attacking in the north. So Harold and his armies have to go north to fight them. In the meantime, William is getting his, his armies ready and they sail down to the south of England. And um, so Harold and his army have to march after this battle march all the way down to the south of England. So they're exhausted. I just can't imagine how they would feel after all of that Um, and engage in battle at the famous battle of Hastings. Um. And they obviously, they lose. And then, The end of the hanging is missing, but people assume that it would have finished with William being crowned King of England. I've missed out lots of little nuances and and little stories about um, the pillaging and burning of crops and and houses and things. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's telling this story, this very complicated story from a particular point of view. Okay.
2: That's really fascinating. I mean, how long is it then? Because that's a long story to, <laughs> to It's tell. a
0: long story, yes. <laughs> um, so the surviving tapestry comes in at just over 63 metres. Um, wow. Obviously, like I said, there's that piece missing at the end and we don't really know how long that would have been.
2: <gasps> yeah. Okay. And who made it or who, who commissioned it, I suppose?
0: We don't have firm evidence for who commissioned it. The overriding consensus... It is that it was probably someone like Bishop Odo, who was half brother to Duke William, and right. a very powerful individual. But so different scholars have come up with other people, and the but the evidence for those other people is even less than it is for Odo. <laughs> right. And I suppose one of the supporting arguments for Odo is the fact that he appears quite prominently in. The, in the Bayer Tapestry. In the tapestry. And going, oh, what a wonderful person this is. Yes, look exactly. How look how great I am. Oh, you wow. can imagine, if it was him, you can imagine him turning up at, at the workshop, going, no, no, make me look grander, can't you, know, you? Surely I would yeah. say this in this, yeah. <laughs> this yeah. I'm not two foot tall. I'm six foot tall, yeah. <laughs> and his name always appears, or nearly always uh, appears above oh. his figure. So he's quite prominent, so... That has one of the reasons why it's led people to suggest that he was the commissioner.
2: I see, I see. And that, I guess, relates to another question which came up on the Google search, which I was quite surprised that it came up. I put in why Bayo Tapestry. And the first question that came up was why is the Bayo Tapestry not reliable?
0: Oh, yeah. that's. <laughs> I suppose people look at the Bayo Tapestry and sometimes think that it's a historical document and take it as literal fact. you shouldn't really do with any historical document really you should always question it but it tells the story from a certain perspective and it's so you have to take into account all the nuances and the propaganda that's involved in that so there's that side of it but I, I think that question could also be referring to the fact that in the past researchers have wondered and investigated whether the depictions of the armour and different elements that you see in it are historically accurate. So if someone was on an excavation, whether they would find a, a helmet that looked exactly the same and things like this. So there's there's that link to archaeological objects as to whether it's, they're accurately depicted within the tapestry. Ah, okay. And that, has there been,
2: so that was sort of in the early days, has there been any further research into that or...?
0: I think most people now will agree that the designer probably saw these objects and then was able to render them. But whether they are 100% accurate is another question. Hmm. And it's a difficult one to answer, really.
2: (laughs) I mean, is it like those things? You always see those pictures from medieval times of, you know, someone and it's the classic meme is like, Oh, draw a hippopotamus. You do know what a hippopotamus looks like, right? You know, yeah. artists. Of course, I do. And it's some, you know, bizarre rabbit with a horn on its head or something. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't
0: say it was as way out as that. Um, <laughs> I'd say it was. It was more accurate than that. And. People are still doing me, do still look at it from that point of view as well. And so uh, people, sometimes you get articles or chapters and books coming out that's, uh, because there's so much published on the Bayer Tapestry. So you, there are, they do include chapters in books on it as well, um, talk, discussing that in, in more detail. But so I think elements of them, are, uh, you might find certain elements of things that are very similar to what how it's depicted in the Bayer Tapestry, but whether a whole object would be the same is another question.
2: Okay, okay, okay. Oh, very interesting. Well, that's (laughs) that's a a very, already a very detailed answer to the Google's most searched questions. This is what happens (laughs) when you go more historic rather than prehistoric. There's actually, you know, written evidence that we can use to to answer these questions. Let's have a very quick break and we'll be back soon to discuss more.
1: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard
2: for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to part two of this chat with Alex Macon. (laughs) He's talking about the Bayo Tapestry. I'm so sorry. No, no, it's fine. It's just, I I think because I always see it written down and then... I never really have yeah. to say it out loud that much and just, uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah, no, everyone's the same, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a fantastic name for uh, <laughs> someone uh, looking at making things. It's perfect. So we know a little bit more about the kind of the context, I suppose, or the background of the Bayeux Tapestry, what it depicts, why it was made, potentially. But mm. perhaps we can, we can go into a bit more of a detailed discussion. So we already talked about kind of, there's a little bit of a debate about who commissioned it. It was probably Bishop Odo. Are there any other? suggestions of other people that it might have been? Or what? what's the kind of main points of that debate uh, around who commissioned it?
0: So it has been suggested that in the past, really, that, it, that Queen Matilda may have commissioned it. But the evidence for that, as far as I'm aware, is very slight. I think there have been a couple of other suggestions as well, which I can't remember off the top of my head. Huh. But yeah, but Bishop Odo is there in the forefront. Okay. Yeah. So it's the most
2: sort of likely, probably, suggestion. Okay. Yeah. And, but then, so he commissioned it, but who was it who actually sewed it? Who were the actual embroiderers?
0: So again, there's been a lot of debate around this. Obviously, people having different arguments for their own research and scholarly reasons and putting their own points of view across. But the consensus now is that it was embroiderers in early medieval England, and the reason there are a number of reasons for that. First of all, embroiderers from England were renowned for their skill and their embroidery work. And there's lots of documentary evidence. Well, I say lots. There's lots when you consider how much documentary evidence survives from the period. Yeah. Huh. So there's there's lots of evidence uh, demonstrating their skill, as well as the surviving the surviving objects themselves, and the fact that people wanted. Their pieces.
2: So it wasn't just the English saying, Oh, look how no. good we
0: are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> no, so um, you have sorts of kings going to see popes taking pieces with them to give to popes, but you also have requests from sorts of people within ecclesiastical circles and um, in, in the elite circles. But then when the Normans arrive, they actually when they're pillaging places, they're actually taking these embroideries uh, and sending them back to um, places in Normandy. Or, or people like Queen Matilda, for instance, are commissioning new pieces to be embroidered, which they're sending back to religious institutions that they've established themselves. Mm. For, for her point of view, there was a, a convent in Corn that she uh, she was sending pieces back to. So there is this reputation and William of Walmsbury, who, who was a chronicler, he he actually writes about this, and it was well known that it was a feminine art, and to be good at spinning and weaving and embroidery, it showed that you were this amazing female as well within society. So it was it, it, it had all these other connotations as well. Opposed to, to that is the fact that women in um, Normandy are not known for their skill in embroidery. I did some research on this for a chapter I wrote for a book, and there's practically no evidence discussing them as embroiderers um, until you get to slightly later and we get the uh, romance stories coming through. And and then you get this idea that the elites were embroidering, but not necessarily for um, commission. And it was more of... um, I don't want to say hobby, but it was it was more as a, a, a leisurely, more of a leisurely affair for them. Okay, but, but you also get these other connotations as well, beginning to come through that they again that it's it's a feminine art and this kind of thing. But it's a high, it's more of a high ranking. It suggested that it's more of a high ranking skill within a normal society. So there's so there's that kind of evidence really.
2: But did then, would the women who would have sewn, if we assume that they're women then, um, would the women who have sewn it, would they have likely then been, for example, upper class women or kind of the the ladies, shall we say? Or would they, would people, would sort of servant classes or working classes also have been able to do this kind of embroidery?
0: So, yeah, so it was women in that period. All the evidence points mm, okay. to it within, no. within England being women. And the although there's evidence in other countries that um, men did embroider at this okay. period, which is interesting, but you get this different women across society were embroidering. So okay. whether they were all using gold and silk, that's a different question. But you you get this the evidence that right from the very early period that women were creating and decorating pieces for um, their immediate family and their local village. And then as the, the period progresses, you get the development of what we call central estates where the ecclesiastical and um, secular elites were gathering materials and therefore people together. And so you, could, mm. you can see that there's a development in um, the production of textiles and therefore their decoration along two different paths and then as the period progresses even more you get more evidence for those two traditional forms but also for independent concerns being set up so we have this lovely doomsday in doomsday book we have evidence for two women who were embroidering, and I, they, they don't come across as being elite. And we have in Winchester, Aldrich's wife, that's all we know of her, she was doing embroidery for Queen Matilda. But then you have other documentary sources like the Libra Aliensis, the Book of Ely, so this is the book that the monks of Ely were writing about their what, what was happening within their community and around it, and you have a couple of embroiderers named in that. And again, they weren't elites. So I think the whole thing, everyone could embroider <laughs> the materials they were using and the standard that they would work, were working to would depend, I think, on okay. their social status, their training, what was needed and what their patron, or what they were being commissioned to make. So what their patron could afford to pay for as well. Okay.
2: And so for example, with the Bayeux Tapestry, what was, I assume then that was made of very high quality everything, <laughs> like all the yeah. best materials, all of the, what What was the, well, what actually was the main material? Is it linen or cotton or of, of the panel? I mean, sorry.
0: Yeah, the the ground, yeah. the ground fabric is um, linen. Okay. And then the, the majority of, Like 99.9% of the embroidery is wool. But there are a couple of areas where you can see there's a linen thread that's being used. But the majority of the embroidery stitching is wool. So this is interesting because wool was ubiquitous. It was used across the whole of society. So Mm -hmm. you can't say that it's a very elite thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Linen was, I suppose, more... I, I don't know if if you're in the UK more of your John Lewis type of fabric, that kind of thing, more so sort I don't, of I, slightly upper middle class kind of. Yeah, thing. I, I, I was hesitating to say it because I hate using the class terms, but yes, well, yeah, but, it know, was. People, yeah,
2: you might go to a Marks and Spencer's more than Waitrose. <laughs> no, Waitrose more than Waitrose uh, more. Yeah, <laughs> or yeah,
0: something. Yes, yeah, and. Yeah, so that was, whereas your silks and your gold, they're, they're high echelon, on their designer. So yeah, right. so um, that's, I suppose, um, the way it worked out. So, but the, the materials that were used for the hanging are perfect for what the hanging is trying to do. It's going to be exhibited in a big public space for lots of people to view it, and it's it's like seeing an altar cloth in a cathedral; these mm. big designs, where which you can see from a distance, and even if you can't see the detail, you can get the you can read the story that it's trying to tell from a distance. Mm. And then when you get up close, you can see all these different details and things. So, although the materials are not silk and gold work, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it's actually perfect for what it's trying to achieve. Mm. And yeah. where was it hung? Actually. Oh, the big question! Uh-huh. One of the big questions. Why, one why of the I many you all big the questions. questions today.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm thinking I should have done a little Stick to one of the points. <laughs> <laughs> no nuance ones here. <laughs>
0: Sorry. <laughs> no, no. I, I like to sit on the fence unless it's to do with me. <laughs>
2: well, what are what are the suggested places then
0: that it was uh, well, that it so, so, been hung? So, <laughs> so the most popular suggestion is it was made for Bayer Cathedral. I don't. Personally, I'm not sure that it was originally made for the cathedral. I like uh, Gail Owen Crockers and Chris, I can't remember his last name. I'm so sorry. Their, Their idea that it was actually made for a room in a castle originally. And I can see how that would work with the layout of the story and the uh, p- the positioning of it and how it would have been positioned around uh, the size of a room. I, I mean, it suggested Dover Castle, but how it would <laughs> fit within the, the, the particular parameters of that room. And I think that would work very well. The beginnings of the of the tapestry, the tapestry's life, are, are shrouded in kind of mystery, really. And it, you don't hear about it at Bayer Cathedral until I think it's, Fourteen, something or other. Oh wow! Okay, when, when it appears in in documents where they say they get it out once a year and it's displayed around the nave. Oh. So I know p- some people will disagree with me on that. Some people will <laughs> disagree with me quite firmly on that, but that's my personal opinion <laughs> on, of, for and the th- evidence that I've seen. Yeah.
2: Okay. And, and you mentioned that in, in Bayer, the cathedral, it's sort of mentioned in 1400. So I, I had used the date 1077 in our little time travel thing, mainly because I wasn't yeah. sure indeed how soon after the battle it would have been done. Is that then too early, do you think? Do they know when it
0: was made? It's assumed that it's made around that time. Okay. Yes. <laughs> you know, so you're okay. It's all right. My, my very shallow <laughs> researching into it didn't,
2: didn't let me down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. No, you don't have to do a lot of re-editing. It's fine. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Edit myself to say I had twelve hundred and thirty-seven. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it was it was done fairly soon after the battle and everything mm. took place then. Mm. Yeah. No, interesting. And so you mentioned that we sort of know that it, or we, we could assume that it was made in England because of the kind of high level of seems, uh, embroidery skill that sort of is demonstrated through it and things. And that kind of correlates with what we know of, of the skills in England. Are there different styles or techniques, you mentioned technique, um, of, uh, of embroidery that you can see between, for example, Normandy versus England or other areas at that time?
0: Yeah. Before I answer that, I just I should have said also that the, there are there are other reasons for us thinking that it was made in England was because the the design itself is very similar to surviving manuscripts oh, from okay. from Saint Augustine's community um, in Canterbury and places like that. So there's there's also that side of it as well. Not it's not just about the embroidery technique. Oh, okay. So as far as I'm aware, there's actually very little, if any. Embroidery surviving from the Norman period in Normandy. Okay. I did read once about uh, some found in a burial, but I've not. It was a very preliminary, sketchy outline. I've not actually been able to track that down. And I think the suggestion in the report was that it actually wasn't made locally. Well, it sounds like they were all rubbish at embroidery there anyway. Yes. Right? <laughs> so, I'm, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to sit on the fence. <laughs> so I don't know if there were any differences. I mean, in, in the romances and the things they talk about working with um, things like silk and stuff like that, which you would expect, I suppose, people of high rank to be to be doing. But the, the use of wool um, on linen... You can see correlations with that sort of thing within Scandinavian countries. But also you can argue that that sort of thing was used for hangings within early medieval England and possibly other places like Normandy as well because it's, it's just, the as I said earlier, the materials are just perfect for that sort of thing and for depicting these large cartoon-like stories as well. Yeah, I think yeah. that the reason the Bear Tapestry has become so synonymous and famous is because it survived,
2: I was actually going to ask, why is the tapestry, you know, such a big deal? <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs>
0: well, it's partly because it survived, yeah. but partly because it was sort of rediscovered in the antiquarian period oh. in the 19th century, so Victorian period for in, in the UK. And there was, during that period, there are a lot of countries, not just the UK were trying to establish themselves as leaders of empire and this sort of thing. And they as a result of that, and it happened it happens throughout history. They were trying to show that they had this great lineage and they should be leaders of empire. And it goes right back into the mists of time. For hmm. so the English in particular, the Bayer Tapestry had these sort of resonances as well. I mean it did, it wow. did for people in Normandy too. But that's why it has such large cultural connotations, particularly in England, even up till today. I see,
2: because it it tells the story that people wanted to hear. Otherwise.
0: I'm not necessarily wanted to hear, but it shows that <sighs> they that there is this, um, well, no, from the from the antiquarian period, probably because all the all the elite family the aristocrats from that period would always turn round and say, "We go back to William. We came over with William right. the Conqueror." So yeah, look, you're yeah, right, yeah, yeah. actually. Don't you see the yeah facial, yeah uh,
2: similarities? Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> see, I, I don't look at it like that because I always think my family probably went, hopefully, went back be, beyond that, and therefore <laughs> we're the ones that were subjugated by the Normans, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but a lot of the aristocrats were they like to say they used to like to say that they came over with with William the Conqueror and his entourage oh, yeah. and stuff, so yes, yeah, so it would link him with that, yes. <laughs>
2: and so, so you mentioned that it's sort of it survived, and that's what's mm. quite special about it. Are there any other kind of big tapestries? How does it how does it compare to sort of its contemporaries in that respect?
0: So, from the UK, we have documentary evidence only, unfortunately, of another big hanging called. And I hope I can pronounce this right. The Britknock hanging, and this um, the evidence for this is found in that book, the Libra Eliensis that I mentioned before, the, the Book of Ely, where. Elderman, an earl, uh, he went to fight the Vikings in around nine nine one, I think it was, if I remember correctly. And he, his wife, donated to the monks at Ely a hanging that was depicted the great deeds of her husband. So Uh we have this documentary evidence for that, uh, for the specific hanging. We also have hints through other documentary evidence that hangings depicting great deeds, whether religious or secular, were used within both religious and secular settings. So that's within England. But in Scandinavia, we have the woven textiles from the Osberg Ship Burial, which again show a, a the cartoon, like they show a storyline, possibly mythological. Mm-hmm. And we have later the rune, a sort of small fragment of rune hanging which um, was found in a church and it's a linen ground fabric with wool embroidery and you can see it's not exactly the same I mean it's a small fragment but it's not exactly the same as the bear tapestry but you can see there are similarities there to that okay, okay. And, and there are other examples I could cite but there it's in this melee of wall hangings that show great deeds and are telling stories to a Population that couldn't necessarily read, mm. as well as acting as draft excluders <laughs> and decorating <laughs> houses and things yes. like that, insulators. Yeah, yeah. yes, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So it's it's part of this huge melee. But like I say, the the rune fragment is small. The Bay tapestry has gained fame because it has survived so well. Yeah.
2: Okay. yeah. Which yeah, you wonder how many other. Amazing tapestries there were that yeah. maybe just didn't survive them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wish
0: they had, but you know. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> We'd see all these different stories. We'd yes. see five different versions of the same battle and <laughs> all these different. Historians would love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. That's I think uh, we're going to have a very quick break now so that uh, our listeners can have an opportunity to top up their tea, <laughs> and we will be back soon.
1: <laughs> What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat?
0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly
1: Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! Auto Parts! Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then, there are drinks from McDonald's.
0: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
2: ba 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 Welcome back, everyone. I hope that the teacups are fuller and the biscuit jar emptier. So, thank you so much for telling us a bit more about the bio Tapestry, which indeed sounds like it's sort of... Famous just because it happened to survive, which has sort of been, I guess, inevitable <laughs> for so many historic documents as well. You wonder how much, how much is missing out there. And I am actually curious, we sort of had mentioned it a few times throughout, and I think it would be interesting to talk about. This is the first of this podcast, which is dealt, I guess, with more historic artefact rather than prehistoric artefact. And I'm curious, as a, as a textile archaeologist as well, obviously you have specialised in more historic periods, but what is your kind of experience of historic textile archaeology versus prehistoric? Is it, does it hinder the research to have all of this extra information? Does it make it more difficult? Does it make it easier? What would you say?
0: Well, I am slightly biased. Well, now I'm very biased because I love <laughs> my period and I, and I would only step out of it really if push came to shove. But for me, I, I, I'm quite interdisciplinary in my approach to you, my work, so I love the fact that you have all this art, historical, documentary evidence and all these other um, sources that I can go to, to, tr- to try and create a really full and rounded picture. And, and for me as well, it's not just about technical attributes and telling the story, an object biography story, but it's it's about being able to use that then to explore and enhance the story of the societies in which they were used. And I know people from other periods do that as well. But for me, the fact that you have all this other evidence helps in that. And I I mean, I know people who study prehistoric textiles and the information that they're able to gather from those textiles and their, the sites where they're found. I, I hesitate to say excavation sites because sometimes it's not. I think is amazing, but I I just think eek as well because they <laughs> haven't got any any other sources in which to either back up what they're saying or to to help expand the stories that they're telling.
2: Yeah. See, I would argue the other way as a prehistorian. <laughs> like to me, it's really scary to have all of these extra levels of of interpretation that you have to go through. Because, I mean, as you mentioned before as well, obviously the Bayeux Tapestry, you you said, oh, people see it as a historic document that tells one truth Mm. or, you know, thing, but obviously Mm. it doesn't. And I mean, I guess that's the case with all other forms of historic documentation and i know now i'm just talking about obviously all historians have training in this and are able to work <laughs> through the bias but to me that's the main that's almost scarier to to have to kind of you're not just working through your own bias when you're interpreting the past you're also having to think ah but why did they write this or why did they they do this but i suppose that's something that's second nature to you now
0: well and that's something that i find really interesting and exciting as well is the fact that well why are you writing this what exactly are you trying to say and and then i can say oh you're were wrong or yes you know you you were. right I don't know it's all part of that whole I suppose it's like a very complex detective story really and I just yeah that's one of the things that I I really like about it I mean I do have to sometimes put the brakes on and say no I don't think they really were saying that Alex I think that's your that's you reading too much into it (laughs) yeah you sometimes if you get if I get excited about something I have to kind of rein myself in yeah it's funny, isn't it, how you, people who specialise in different periods can look at the other period and go, as oh, as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, well,
2: luckily, there are enough of both sorts. to yes, <laughs> that we can that's spread true. Yes. out throughout all of Pew. the periods, which is useful. <laughs> and because obviously then you do indeed specialise in more historic periods, early medieval, but when do you know when, for example, the first embroidery might have been? What is the kind of earliest physical evidence that we have for something that could be interpreted, I guess, as embroidery.
0: I don't know exactly, but embroidery does go way back into the myths of prehistory. So it has a very long tradition. And from the early medieval period itself, I mean, I suppose the earliest piece could be a decoratively functional piece. So it was actually doing, it was holding a tablet woven band to a textile. And that was found on a child's hood from Orkney. I just love the fact that the, the, po- the possible earliest piece from my period could be this childhood. Mm. So, And that that stitch is it's a form of what we call loop stitch, but it uses three different threads being worked at the same time. So it's a very complex stitch. Mm-hmm. So it shows that by the early medieval period, embroidery had developed, it might not be pictorial, but it had developed in a form that was, very complex, and that people understood in detail the um, how to use fibres and materials and to create these beautiful objects as well. And I love that. It's such a long tradition. And I guess what's interesting, I mean, I never really
2: thought about it before, but of course, sewing has been going on for, you know, how many thousands of years, mm. we assume, based on the evidence of needles. But that's more of yeah. a... Uh, in you know for want of a better word practical I guess you know um, a yeah. way to create bits of clothing so it sort of fulfills a practical need for survival but something like embroidery is more it is. I, I actually don't know the official definition of embroidery but is it always something that's more decorative or more kind of do you know what I mean <laughs> what yeah yeah, yeah. no me. I know what you
0: mean and as I, I was as you were saying that I was thinking oh gosh it's you're a different There are different understandings of embroidery, particularly depending on the period that you you studied. So for me, um, in the early medieval period, embroidery... It starts off as what I would call, as I said earlier, decoratively functional. So mm. it's doing a functional holding, protecting of um, seams, or, or joining them together, or hems, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's decorating them at the same time. Mm. So, so it's it, not it's, just
2: doing a simple stitch; it's doing like a, a nice
0: yeah, stitch. it's <laughs> adding that extra, it's adding that extra layer on that you didn't need to add, but. Oh. but it's human nature to be surrounded by beauty, whether natural or created, and, and forms of art, artistry, and this shows it in, I was going to say very simple, but it's not very simple terms, but it shows it even in small areas that people wanted to do this. So you have that, and then you move up to towards the end of the period where people are telling stories through it, and it's, it can mm-hmm. be more pictorial, it's can be it can be simple or elaborate but it's decorating objects or it like the bear tapestry it's purely there's no functionality in it Mm. as such i mean yes it could be used to to decorate and exclude drafts and that but yeah it's it's main it's main reason is decorative and to tell certain stories and things like that Huh?
2: which yeah that's that's a a very very rubbish answer (laughs) no no but i like it it's almost like a you know you can see it progress i guess from sort of cave paintings to then uh, which may you know, maybe initially there was some theory I read somewhere that the very, very earliest cave paintings might have been way markers. So it was more of a, yes, it was decoration, but it also served a practical function. And yes. then kind of potentially just developed into something that was purely aesthetic. And I guess it's sort of similar in terms of the. Yes.
0: You've just answered the question so much better than I have.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I just summarized what you said (laughs) in a beautiful way. I did the boring answer. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, no, but that's, uh, yeah, it's really fascinating. It would be so interesting indeed to see, how far back it goes then. I mean mm. there's there's so a decorative decoration and beads and all of that kind of stuff, I suppose yes. beads being sewn onto clothing is already quite far back. I suppose that could be the the sort of precursor maybe to, to embroidery. Possibly, yes. Or something like that. Yeah. And in terms of sort of the, the material culture that you have from embroidery, obviously you have the The tapestries themselves but as you said they don't always survive but do you have for example specialized embroidery needles or other kind of materials that you could look at and say ah well they were doing embroidery at this site or whatever even if we don't have the actual embroidery left
0: (laughs) so i wouldn't say specialist needles as perhaps we would know them today Um, but you do find beautiful needles particularly in viking contexts actually where they are held in needle cases and they're, they're often found in female, sometimes child burials uh, attached to the girdle or the belt of the deceased. And they, I mean, the ones I like the most are that they're, they're in these needle cases, but they've been p- placed into bits of fabric as well and then the fabric with the needles have been placed into mm. these needle cases and I just love that because it's so tangible isn't it Yeah. so and some of these needles are very fine and could I would argue have been used for either very fine functional work or embroidery work and then at the other end of the scale you get these objects that are possibly needles I would argue that they probably are needles but they're they're really thick I say big they're not like houses, but they. are <laughs> <Yes, well, talk laughs> and, the and, and yes, terms. And, the yes. Yes, yes. Um,
2: okay.
0: and they they were perhaps used for I don't know, things like fishing nets or framing up embroideries um, okay. and this kind this kind of work, more coarse work. So you do get a gradation in needles, but whether you can say they're specialised for silk work and gold work compared to being used for lots of different things is more mm. difficult to say. And I suppose
2: things like the frames and stuff are also usually organic or wood. So they might not also
0: necessarily survive as well. Or Yeah. There were no embroidery frames from the period. (laughs) yeah, Yeah. I've argued that there's an image of a man who most people say he's um, weaving, but I've argued he's actually embroidering. And this is from a Byzantine context. And if you look at him and compare it to images of people embroidering, the way he sat is very similar to that. But also the context—it's from the Byzantine oh, Exodus, I think. Oh, no, that might be the wrong thing. But it's from Ex- it's from Exodus, and and he—it's around the creation. It's set in around the creation of the temple, and so it's talking about not only weaving things to deck to hanging cloths to hanging the temple but it's also talking about embroidering and decorating textiles as well so that dates to uh, towards the end of our period so i've argued that's the earliest image really that we have but there's no hard evidence okay
2: Oh, wow, interesting. And you sort of, uh, we've mentioned a couple of times so that it was sort of assumed that the women were the ones doing the embroidery, um, although you mentioned in some European countries it may have been men, and you just mentioned a man doing embroidery then. In terms of kind of professional embroidery now, I mean, I'm just thinking of something like, cooking which you know everyone mm. the sort of classic stereotype everyone's like oh women's place is in the kitchen you know yes. and, and it's sort of assumed that you know if you're a cook you're a, you're a woman but the chefs you know the best yes. chefs were only allowed to be yes. men or you know yes. all this kind of thing is it similar with embroidery is that something that it's sort of oh yes it's women's work but if you want to be really professional you're more like you know the men are the most likely to get it or is that completely different
0: so it's different. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this, I mean, the problem we have with embroidery is the fact that at the Renaissance, there was this divide between what was classed, what we would now class as a higher art and crafts. Uh-huh. Whereas pre, and, and a lot of things to do with embroidery also have this, been linked to feminism and, and the development of that as well. But pre the Renaissance, the embroidery, the evidence shows that embroidery was classed as a high art form and the evidence for the early medieval period in what's now the British Isles is that embroidery was a female role. But in Byzantium and the Islamic world, we have evidence that actually men were professional embroiderers huh. during the same period. So I, I find that quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the British Isles and um, within mainland Europe as well, you have, with the development of the guilds and, and this mm-hmm. system and the so-called professionalization of these cra- arts and crafts, men then begin to to be seen in the records as well and um, particularly during the later medieval period you you do get a lot more men involved in embroidery and they're also being paid more as well of course so yeah you know (laughs) it it carries on all the way down the centuries (laughs) (laughs) so yeah and then with the renaissance with this divide embroidery then becomes you still get men and women but you embroidery is now becoming more of Considered more of a craft form rather than art form, and then you get this, yeah, this this development into it's women's work. It's a leisurely thing; you do it at home. You still get the professionals, obviously, but yeah, that's yeah. Brief synopsis.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. I was just, I was genuinely really curious. I was also curious, and but you also sort of mentioned that slightly at the beginning that there is there is kind of still work for professional embroiderers nowadays, because especially because, as you say, it might be considered more craft than high art since that period. So I was curious whether it was something that is necessarily not easy to find work in, but, you know, whether there is enough regular work to have to
0: have that as your specialism. Yes. I mean, I've got I've got lots of friends who are professional embroiderers and they tend to do a lot of I say that they tend to be multi stranded, So they'll take on commissions, they perhaps produce kits and um, they teach workshops and mm. things like that so it's not just about sitting at your frame and embroidering yeah, it's okay. um, that multifaceted side and it particularly if you are working at the top end of the scale perhaps you would be working for couture designers and things right, as well of course, Yeah. So, th- so there's lots of different levels I mean and and you can get people who just who write books, produce um, designs for books and things like that as well. So there's lo- there's lots of different levels for people working in professional embroidery.
2: Yeah. And you mentioned sort of commissions and, and kits and things. So I think I saw uh, on your socials that you're doing currently working on sort of a replica of part of the the Bayo Tapestry as a kind of uh, a, a project uh, that you're doing. Yes. How, how did that start? What, what made you want to do that?
0: It's funny. I was. It started with a discussion with my husband, and and um, and I was just saying the men to him, in your life are just taking uh, yeah, you back to the Bayeux Tapestry. Yeah, it? exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So I've been really lucky in that I've had access to high digital images of the back of the bay of tapestry, and I've been had been given access to take microscopic images of the tapestry itself, um, and so I've been able to do research on the technical aspects of it, which is something that's not been explored really at all before and and i've been able to produce research papers on, on that side of things but there's a part of me as an as an embroiderer who's always thinking well this is the evidence that you see in the final result but how did that final result occur mm. i'm really interested in what the thought processes were of the people who were made who were stitching and why they made decisions that they did and also whether they are stitching sort of what what they thought about but what was innate on what what just happened because of experience and and Mm. things like that it's all and so the only way really of getting to grips with that is by actually producing a replica a recreation of it, but using authentic materials, because I think we all know that if you use modern materials, the experience isn't the same as, mm, as using yeah. authentic ones. So, so that was one of the reasons, and the other reason was also to look at the interplay between how different sections were worked and why okay. they were worked in the ways they were, and to to kind of back up what I've observed. Through my research with this practical project as well. Yeah,
2: no, I'm really excited to see. I think you're you're documenting it through.
0: I am for my sins. Yeah, yeah, so it's no, on my no. YouTube channel, yeah, which is yeah, quite yeah. scary because it's it's also pe- people understand what I'm doing, and so people can say, "I wouldn't have done it like that." But then, and, <laughs> I mean, that's happened with the latest video that I've put up, and I'm like, "Oh yeah," and you know what? you're doing? totally right why do you <laughs> do it like that and it's, so it's quite scary but everyone's been lovely about it so it's fine but yeah <laughs> Well, and like so, you say,
2: it's showing an option, right? It's showing the... Exactly, the yes. That it's, uh,
0: ...happening. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll make sure to to put a
2: link to that in, oh, thank uh, you. in uh, your thing. <laughs> are there any other exciting projects that are coming up or uh, any other things that uh, you would like to share with those listening in who might be interested in starting a career in embroidery or,
0: or getting uh, started in that? Well, if people are interested in getting started in embroidery, there are so many different options. It depends what kind of route you want to go down, really. So you've got the traditional, which is like the RSN, or you can go down through university courses and, and things like that, Ooh. which give you different options. I think the, the thing for doing something like I've done, you, you're combining both the, his, the history and the academic scholarship with, with the practical skills as well. So you, you would um, have to do a practical and then your, your academic mm. studies and combine them both. So there are different options there for, depending on what people want to do. Exciting projects. Um, so my work at Glasgow is ongoing, That's but that will be finishing soon. And then I'm looking at developing more uh, kits and um, workshops and things like that for, um, for after that. And there's also some research ideas that are being uh, curdling away in my head, but I don't want to talk about any of those just yet. So you'll just have to keep an eye out on well, social media. She says, yeah. plug, plug. Yeah, want no, definitely. We'll, we'll make sure to share things. And the, the, the kits and, and things like that are all on your website, I believe, as well? Yes, yes, they are. Yeah, and um, if, if people want something that's not on there, then please email me, contact me. I might take a while to reply because I'm not always up to my eyeballs, but I will reply eventually. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you
2: so, so much for joining me uh, today, Alex, to chat about uh, all these things. That marks the end of our tea break. It sounds like you've got a lot to prepare, so I will let you get back to work. (laughs) Thank uh, you. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was really great to to chat to you about. Oh, no. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. (laughs) And as we just mentioned, if anyone wants to find out more about Alex's work or the kits or the workshops that she'll be offering or anything about the bio tapestry as well, do check the show notes on the podcast homepage. I'll be putting all of the links in there. I hope that everyone enjoyed our journey today. If you want to help support this show and all of the other amazing series that form up the Archaeology Podcast Network, you can become a member. You'll be helping us to create even more amazing content like this one. (coughs) Just blown my own. Horner. You will also have exclusive access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. For example, our quarterly online seminars, which look at different topics within archaeology. So for more information, go to the homepage, archaeologypodcastnetwork.com uh, and check that out. See you next month. I hope that you enjoyed our journey today. If you did, make sure to like, follow, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel.